and welcome to Device Week, a podcast from MedTech Insight. I'm executive editor Sean Schmidt, and I'm joined today by senior reporters Brian Bassetta and Ferdos Al-Farouk, also known as Danny. We'll chat with Brian in a moment about a circulatory system devices panel meeting put on by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration earlier this month that focused on the safety of graft stents. But let's first quickly talk with Danny, who recently reported for MedTechInsight.com the news that the FDA finally released a long-awaited draft guidance for medical software in the pre-market space. Danny, what's going on? Well, as it turns out a lot, Sean, as you said, the FDA issued its draft guidance, which it titled Content of Pre-Market Submissions for Device Software Functions. Some listeners may remember that this is the same guidance that Booz Allen Hamilton said the FDA had failed to produce as part of their user fee obligations. The objective of the guidance is to let sponsors know what kind of documentation they need to provide in their pre-market applications for certain medical software, such as software as a medical Medical device or SAMD and software in a medical device also known as SIMD. But there's a guidance already in place that addresses this issue. So why did the FDA feel the need to write this new draft? Right. Well, that guidance was implemented back in 2005. Since then, however, a lot has changed in the digital health world. The 2005 guidance, which, by the way, is still the guidance sponsors need to follow until the draft guidance is finalized, created a three-tiered system based on a product's risk. The higher the risk a product potentially poses means the more documentation the FDA wants from the sponsor. But that created some serious confusion about how to categorize different products. The new draft guidance aims to simplify all that by creating two categories instead of three. The higher risk level products will be the ones that need to provide more documentation. On top of that, the guidance addresses the need for a whole slew of new documentations that the agency previously didn't realize was needed. And that's good for sponsors, right? It makes it easier for them to figure out what the FDA expects of them. Well, yes and no. Uh, You're right. It makes it easier for sponsors to categorize themselves into one of two risk levels instead of three. But it could also mean sponsors that previously didn't have to provide additional documentation on stuff like product design and cybersecurity safety measures now may have to go the extra mile and do just that. I talked to an expert on the topic from the law firm Morgan Lewis, and his take was that larger, more traditional medical device manufacturers will probably be fine with the extra documentation requirements because they're doing that kind of documentation gathering anyway without the FDA asking them to do so. Plus, they have the overhead to absorb any extra administrative costs related to the requirement. But smaller companies, especially those coming out of Silicon Valley that don't have the experience with the FDA or device regulations, are likely to be the ones to find this especially burdensome. So what advice do you have for these newer and smaller companies? What should they do? Well, in short, the advice is to go get outside help. Find experts who have experience getting products through the FDA review process, especially in digital health, who know the regulations to help aggregate all the necessary documents before filing the application. Also, the FDA has this pre-submission process where sponsors can talk to regulators and get a better sense of what they want. That's an opportunity for sponsors to get clarifications on the guidance. But the caveat is that regulators tend to communicate in what's known as FDA speak. And if you're not versed in that, you may be talking over each other, which at the end of the day could hurt your submission. That's good advice. 
Oh, and one last thing worth mentioning is that the draft guidance, unlike the 2005 guidance, includes a bunch of examples of when additional documentation may be required and what kind of documentation may be required. That in itself is a significant step for these inexperienced medical device sponsors. It really shows that the FDA understands a large segment of companies producing digital health products are these Silicon Valley startups with little or no medical regulatory experience, and the agency is really trying to speak to them through its guidance. Yeah, a lot of companies are going to be touched by this guidance, so we'll be keeping an eye on it as it moves toward being finalized by the agency. Thanks for that reporting, Danny. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the FDA's Circulatory System Devices panel met recently to discuss the safety of graft stents, which are devices used to treat abdominal aortic aneurysms. Now, this has been an issue for a few years, particularly around stents made by California-based Endologics. Brian, you covered the panel meeting for MedTechInsight.com, but before we get into what was discussed... Talk briefly about what an abdominal aortic aneurysm is and how these graft stents are used to treat it. Sure thing, Sean. These types of aneurysms are a bulge or swelling in the aorta, which can get bigger over time, leading to potential rupture, which can be fatal. But this can be prevented through endovascular surgery in which a small incision is made to access the blood vessels. Then the graft is inserted through the arteries to fix the problem. This sounds like it's much less invasive than, say, more traditional surgeries. It is, which is why it's become increasingly popular. Okay, so back to the FDA panel. What's the issue with these stents from Endologics? Well, patients implanted with these stents have a higher risk of leakage of blood flowing back into the aneurysm sac, which is called a type 3 endoleak. In fact, the FDA warned of this risk in 2018 with the Endologic stent AFX with Strata, which was the company's oldest version. It was taken off the market in 2014. The company replaced the Strata with the AFX with Duraply. What's Duraply? It's basically just a stronger fabric to prevent leaks. There have been three stents in the AFX series. There's the Strata and the Duraply, which are no longer marketed but are still inside patients. And now there's the AFX2 stent. The AFX2 was approved by the FDA in 2015 and released commercially in 2016. And I assume the Duraply and the AFX2, that they were made so they could improve upon the previous version. That's right, at least intended to be. So have these improvements satisfied the FDA? No. In fact, in 2019, the FDA issued a warning stressing that patients with any AFX graft have lifelong annual follow-ups to make sure everything is holding up. And again, in 2020, the agency issued a safety notice for all three grafts. Okay, so there's Strata and Duraply, which are the two older versions. But what about the company's most recent graph, the AFX2? Wasn't this newer model supposed to fix that leak problem? Yeah, the AFX2 was designed with thicker material beyond that of the Duraply design. However, the panel's concern is the limited amount of data available on the AFX2 and wasn't sure that the latest upgrades had solved these leak issues. And what did Endologic say? They were at the panel meeting too, no? Yeah, the company was there, and they acknowledged the issues with AFX Strata, but say through these various innovations in the product line, they've addressed them. They offer data that show changes to the AFX series since 2013 have been effective. The company also said the FDA's view is too narrow and that graphs used for aneurysm repair are complex and that there are many different reasons why they might fail. Endologics argues that concentrating on only one failure mode, such as type 3 endoleaks, 
doesn't paint the whole picture and fails to provide a full benefit-risk profile for patients, they feel the totality of data should be considered. I see. So where do things go from here? Well, despite the lingering concerns, the panel felt the AFX2's benefits do outweigh the risks for some patients, such as those with smaller vessels or peripheral vascular disease or when there's no other alternative for the patient. But only a handful on the panel recommended the stent for routine use. And what of FDA's concerns over what it considered an anemic amount of data on the AFX2? The panel recommended Endologics collect additional clinical data on the AFX2 and monitor patients for five years after they've undergone the procedure. The panel also strongly recommended patients keep up with their annual screenings, regardless of what AFX device they have. Okay, it'll be interesting to see what happens when this new data comes in and if Endologics will maybe have better luck convincing the FDA in the next go-around. We'll be watching. And that wraps up this week's Device Week podcast. Head on over to medtechinsight.com to find Brian's story on the Endologic stents and Danny's reporting on that draft guidance from FDA for medical software. And while you're at medtechinsight.com, you can check out the first three episodes of our new podcast series, Speaking of MedTech, which features former FDA Device Center Compliance Director Steve Silverman. Steve and I will be chatting about digital health on next week's episode, so make sure you check that out wherever you get your podcasts. And always remember, you can find us on Twitter at medtech underscore insight. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>